My goodness, we practically have people sitting under the table. Um, if any of you would like to come on in into the main area, there is room. There's more cushions in the back. There's some empty chairs over here. Um, or you can stay there under the table. I don't really care. Mm. No, I'm fine. Thank you. Well, I'm wearing my glasses. <laughs> I was thinking just before I rang the bell, I thought, I'm nervous tonight. And it's sort of interesting. Some of you know you were here a few weeks ago when I celebrated, we celebrated and I celebrated 20 years of teaching. I thought, after 20 years, you'd think maybe I wouldn't be nervous anymore, but I'm still nervous sometimes. So sometimes it helps to admit it. And then I, you know, you all smile at me and then I go, oh, okay, it's all right. So, so... A few days ago, I was chatting with a friend who was going through a really, really difficult time in her work situation. And um, we had a long talk, and when the talk was over, she said, you know, she said, I feel like my heart is larger, which is a really sweet thing to say. And I thought about it for a minute, and I said, you know, it's not that your heart is really any larger it's just that there's a few more doors that are open, you know, so that there's, there's some more space. And so finding that place where the heart is open and spacious and that has all the doors and windows open is really a great deal of what the work of this practice is. One of my favorite readings for about this um, is in honor of one of the early Vipassana teachers who came here from India, a woman whose name was Deepama. And Deepama was about four feet tall, and she was dynamite. And a really great teacher, much beloved by many, many people. So this was written in her honor after she died. It says, What is your heart like? That is what they wanted to know. They brought in someone who had just died. They proceeded to open up her heart. You wouldn't believe what was in there. You wouldn't believe it. White people, black people, atheists, rich people, poor people, drunkards, prostitutes, priests, politicians, children, judges, baseball players, cranks, and me, even me. How did I get in there? Is that what I will be like when I die? When they open up my heart, what will they find? So that's a good question. You know, we could each ask it. If if you fell over tonight and they opened up your heart, what would they find? Maybe even more, who knows? So in the sutta on loving kindness, this practice of loving kindness that we often do here, Um, we get the Buddha's basic teachings on how to open the heart. And there's one particular line that whenever I say it, and I I use this as part of my practice, it always kind of grabs me. So it says, um, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none. So that's the line, right? 
the omitting none, that you're, you're creating this heart of kindness that does not close out anyone or any being. And when I've taught this sutta, sometimes that causes a lot of consternation. You know, what, what am I going to do? You know, how, what does that mean, omitting none? Sounds kind of, you know, like a, a really bottom line. And how can I not omit certain people? Or, or sometimes I omit entire classes of people, you know. And how do I meet every being with <coughs> equal kindness? So, you know, we all know the places in our own being where the doors of the heart either are closed or they close pretty easily. It doesn't take too much to close that door. And we know the places where we're contracted and where we're shut down and where we're hurt and where we're wounded and where we're angry. And often those closed places really do have to do with where we've been harmed in some way. And in when we do loving-kindness practice, often we suggest at the beginning that we take a period of time to reflect on forgiveness, directing our attention to those places where we know we've been hurt and we know that the heart is shut down. There's a wonderful quote, which I wasn't able to bring tonight, from Henri Nouwen, where he says, um, Forgiveness is the name of love practiced among those who love poorly, and that none of us is very skilled at loving. So we all have to practice forgiveness. So in the, in the sutta, it says, um, this is, it starts, the, the very first line, it says, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And I always appreciate that first line when I think about loving kindness and when I think about forgiveness because it implies that it's a skill, that this is something that we can learn and, and develop. We can train in it and we develop the skill of loving and the skill of forgiveness just in exactly the same way that we train to play the piano or play tennis or develop muscles at the gym. So forgiveness is a very particular form of loving-kindness practice. And it's particular because of the woundedness that precedes it. And it's a very difficult word for people. There are people, we scheduled, I was just came back from three days up at Spirit Rock, where on one of the days we had a ritual for about 50 people because life has been kind of difficult at Spirit Rock. And so we were having a ritual of forgiveness and renewal for the people who work there so that we could kind of let go of some of the things that have happened and move on. And it was advertised as a ritual that had to do with forgiveness. And we met with quite a bit of resistance, actually. There were people who said, oh, I don't want to go, you know. I'm not ready to forgive. I'm, you know, that, I don't want to pretend that nothing happened. And, and somebody once, when I was going to teach about forgiveness, said, well, I think of forgiveness as the other F word. You know, it's just one of these <laughs> words that you hear it and you think, wait a minute, you know. I, because we're so associated with forgiveness, meaning that we're going to forget that something happened, or we're going to gloss it over, or we're going to pretend that our woundedness isn't there. 
And so it implies a lot of denial and repression for some people. And a lot of questions come up around it. Like, you know, can I protect myself if I forgive someone? You know, how do I take care of myself? Or what do I do with the anger that might still be there, you know? Or sometimes it's okay, I can forgive other people, but myself, you know, I can't forgive myself very easily. That's, that's a really hard one for people. And sometimes the question is, well, you know, I'm doing it, but I think maybe I'm doing it hoping that he or she will change, you know, if I forgive them. Or maybe, you know, I'd like to do it, but I'm going to wait until they do change. And then when they change, I'll forgive them, you know. So there's just lots of stuff around. You probably, if we solicited questions and comments from you, there'd be a lot more. (coughs) And so one of the people that I think of a lot when I think about kindness and forgiveness is His Holiness the Dalai Lama. He's been a really great model for many of us and of sort of being able to keep an open heart and teaching many of the people who have studied with him and trained with him to have that same open heart. And I've often found so touching you know, some of the comments that come from the Tibetan monks and nuns who have been imprisoned and tortured, whose greatest worry was not that they would die or that they would be in some way seriously hurt, but that their hearts would shut down and that they would hate their jailers and their torturers. Isn't that amazing? You know, I don't know if I could do that, if that would be my greatest worry under that circumstance. My greatest fear, one of them said, is that I would lose my compassion. And His Holiness often talks about my friends, the enemy, meaning the Chinese communists. <coughs> so, you know, how do we how do we do this? How do we keep our heart open? How do we move toward forgiveness? So one of the things um, to think about as we do this is that that um, the Dalai Lama, when I think about him, the Dalai Lama is understood by the in the Tibetan Buddhist world to be the embodiment of the Bodhisattva of compassion. And if you go to him and say, you know, what do you think about that? He will say, no, 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 I'm just a simple Buddhist monk. You know, we've all seen his comments about that. But what I've come to understand about him as I read about his, read his writings and, and as I've listened to him is that he takes it seriously as a job description. He, his job is to be the bodhisattva of compassion. So I've thought a lot in recent years about, well, what would happen if we all took that as our job description? You know, it's not limited to the Dalai Lama. Any one of us could decide, you know, tomorrow to be the bodhisattva of compassion. And you could go around your work life and your family life. You don't have to tell anybody. It's probably a good idea, actually, if you don't tell anybody. (laughs) But you could just practice being the bodhisattva of compassion and see how it fits, you know, maybe maybe it would be really helpful to keep that heart open and not to omit anyone from it. So, to go back to the forgiveness thread, Nelson Mandela says, you know, not to forgive is like drinking a glass of poison and waiting for your enemies to die. So, you know, Usually if you drink the glass of poison, you know what happens. You're the one who dies. And, and we do often, when we begin to work with these places where we're hurt and angry and, and not forgiven, 
And we often find that we're poisoning ourselves by telling the story over and over and over about how you hurt me and how bad it is and how unhappy I am. And, you know, I don't know about you, but I know when I do that, it sometimes lessens my feelings of feeling, you know, of being so vulnerable. And sometimes we can get really identified with the story that way. But anyway, you cut it, what it does is it, it, it reinfects us with the upset of whatever the event was. And we stay caught. And there's actually been studies that have been done that show that when we do that, you know, your heart beats faster and your blood pressure goes up. You literally do bad things to your body when we rehearse those difficult stories. Our stress hormones go up. So the skill of forgiveness, it's not about forgetting. It's actually about remembering everything that happened fully and then being able to open the heart. And so there's there's no way in this practice of forgiveness that you um, get to have things be different from the way that they were. Or as Jack Kornfield likes to say, to forgive is to give up all hope of a happy past. So, you know, you don't, you don't ever get to have it be the way you want it. So, one of the skills that helps enormously with forgiveness is also to develop the skill of compassion. And compassion, the, the word karuna in Pali is the word for compassion. It actually means the quivering of the heart. I've always liked that. The quivering of the heart. So it's that place that when we sit in the presence of pain and hurt, whether our own or someone else's, the heart actually quivers. And so in this training, we want to see, can we become bodhisattvas, these great beings with great hearts who can be present with pain. There's, there's one image of um, one of the bodhisattvas of compassion that has a thousand arms and in each hand, sort of radiating out around the figure, there's an eye seeing the pain of the world and the tears come down from the eye. So that many eyes taking in that much pain and and weeping over the suffering of all beings. So compassion is the willingness to be utterly present with pain, absolutely immediately with it, whether it's your own or that of another being. And it's not about fixing it, it's not about changing it, it's just the willingness to be fully there. Yes, this is painful, this is the way it is, and not to move away from it the way we so often do. And it's that ability to see our own pain and also that of others that I think actually brings us the ability to forgive. Because if we can't be fully present with pain, then we actually aren't able to keep the heart open. So, you know, as we talk about this in this way, it becomes really, really clear 
that we're going to have to practice because this is not easy what I'm talking about. This is really, really hard to keep the heart open in that way. And so this is the place where our practice of mindfulness comes in. You know, you may think, well, I have no idea how to do this. But actually you do because what are you doing when you're sitting here? You are sitting in the presence of whatever comes up And, you know, for many of us in any day of the week, often there's been some place of pain or sadness or loss or fear or upset that we get to sit with. And, you know, the the instructions are just sit with it, breathe with it, feel it in the body, notice it, name it. Um, Nowhere does it say get up and go get a cup of tea and, you know, take a walk and a nice hot shower and make yourself feel better. The instructions are no, you know. Just you sit here and you be present with it and see what happens when we allow ourselves to be, to practice being present. And of course what you also see is the mind is constantly saying, nope, I don't want to sit with that. I think I'll think about my vacation or no, you know, I think I'll make comments about my meditation practice. But you bring it back and and we train to be simply here with whatever is happening and with our pain. And so we look directly at this experience. I think it's also very, very important to say, whenever I talk about compassion or forgiveness, that this is about opening the heart. This is not about not having boundaries in your life. So you may... Never let somebody back into your living room. It might be actually, in some cases, dangerous to let them back into your life. But does that does not mean that your heart can't be open to them. It's a very different thing. And it's really important to remember that because sometimes having boundaries is actually what allows us then to have the heart be open and to be able to let go and to forgive. So when, when the heart is trained in compassion, is trained in the ability to sit with pain and difficulty, then we can see not only our own woundedness, but then what we also begin to see is, oh, we begin to see the woundedness of that other person, the person who hurt us. And sometimes we go, oh, look, he or she was really confused, or they were really lost, or they were really scared or they were really upset. Because most people, you know, my sense is that there are very, very few people who are acting out of anything other than their own fear, out of their own delusion, their own woundedness. They don't know any other way, and they're really confused and lost, and sometimes very tragically, really tragically, misguided. So, So as the heart of compassion opens up, then we're able to sit with that. But this really requires a huge, huge perspective. You know, you really have to see kind of a a big picture. And one of the descriptions that I've always liked about bodhisattvas, these great beings like the Dalai Lama, is that the bodhisattva, it's said, can hold an entire galaxy in the palm of his or her hand. 
So I don't know about you, but you know, most of you know that I've been loving watching some of these images from the Hubble and that kind of those deep space images. And you know, there they are, all those galaxies, billions of light years away. So we're talking about a really big being. So this is going to take a lot of training to get to be that big. And so forgiveness and the heart of kindness are skills that can take a long, long time to develop. And that's also very, very important to say that forgiveness is not something that you go, okay, okay, we're going to have our little ritual at Spirit Rock, or we're going to do something here at Vipassana Santa Cruz, or I'm going to sit down with my good friend Marcy over here, and I'm going to forgive her right now, and then that's it. It's done. You know, and I mean, it might take me years to forgive Marcy, or it might take her years to forgive me, you know, probably more likely the latter, actually. And so sometimes all you do is you go, you know, I'd like to be able to do it. It would be really cool if I could forgive my father, my boss, my mom, my aunt, Sister Ignatius, whoever it was, you know. And and, you know, you might have that thought, and then you might think, nope, I'm not going there. But, you know, you've had that thought. And then maybe it comes again, and you begin to go, oh, yeah, that might be okay. I wonder if I could learn how to do it. And maybe four or five or six years down the line, you begin to realize, oh, your heart's a little more open. You know, you can send a little compassion or a little kindness towards them. So it's, it's very much like that of, trying it and experimenting and going, yeah, my, I, my heart's a little open and then it closes up again and then it opens up again and it closes up again. So it's like that. you know. It's a, it's a very, very long practice. And what it often leads us to is some exploration of our own shadow, our own darkness. And because often what we begin to find is that we have the same stuff. We're just like the person who hurt us inside. You know, there's places where I can hear my, in my voice, my mother's, you know, or sometimes I see my grandchildren saying the same thing that their mom says to them, and, and that same tone of voice, and, and we carry it on generation after generation. And so beginning to see, oh, when I'm mean or nasty or whatever, I know what I feel like inside, and then we begin to understand what the person who hurt us feels like. Those of you who are old enough to remember Pogo, remember that thing where he, he said once, I've met the enemy and they are us, you know, and he might have just said, you know, they're, they're just like me, you know, they're just like me. So mindfulness is one of the ways that we train, you know, learning to stay present, as I said, with whatever arises, pleasant and unpleasant and neutral, not fixing our experience, not judging it, not feeling sorry for ourselves, just simple, unalloyed presence with ourselves and then carrying that out into the world to be able to do it with other people. And when we practice the practice of mindfulness, compassion begins to develop naturally. I've often told the story of coming home from a really long retreat and realizing after a few weeks 
that every time I saw an accident on the freeway, I was weeping. It was just so upsetting. And after that kept going on for a while, I thought, this is annoying. Why don't I, maybe, why don't I get to be like everybody else? Why don't I just stop all this weeping stuff? And then I thought, wait a minute. Why do I want it to stop? Wouldn't it be great if everybody wept when we saw an accident on the freeway? Because guess what? If we all wept, if we all felt the pain and the fear and and the sadness and everything that must be going on in people in those situations, I suspect we'd all start driving a great deal more sanely. And there might be fewer accidents. You know, it would be a really good thing if we all had that kind of open heart. There's also a lot of more direct practices. So there's the practice of loving kindness that that we do here. And there are practices of compassion that are just very similar to the loving kindness practice where, where you just have a simple phrase of, you know, may your suffering come to an end or or may you have ease of really just bringing into mind your own pain or another's pain. And there's a wonderful Tibetan practice where you breathe in um, the suffering and the pain and you breathe out compassion. So then there's one last thing that I want to add. So we have forgiveness and we have compassion. And then the third practice that I wanted to just mention tonight is the practice of gratitude because I think it's actually a very helpful practice in that in this whole process of opening the heart because in that place of gratitude that's also a willingness to be with whatever comes towards us in our lives in our experience and to to understand that we can learn from it that there's there's, we may not like it, it may, might not be anything we want to have keep going, but there is something that can be learned. There's, there is a, <coughs> a teaching that says that every being that we encounter is enlightened but one. And you know who that is. And they're all doing what they're doing in order to help you wake up. So no matter how annoying those drivers are or the clerk at the store or your boss no matter whatever is happening you know part of what you can do is figure out how it can help you wake up so all events become teachers and what that does is that also begins to soften and to open the heart right because even if there's forgiveness that's needed in there if you're learning from it there's definitely more of a chance that you're going to have more compassion and that you're going to be able to forgive. And interestingly enough, gratitude is a thread that is pretty much in all forms of spiritual practice. You know, there's, there's a wonderful book by David Steindlerest, who's a Benedictine monk and also a, a really serious Zen practitioner. He calls it gratitude is, gratefulness is the heart of prayer. Gratefulness is the heart of prayer. And I have one friend who does has a gratitude buddy, and every day they send emails back and forth, you know, something that they're grateful for today. And, and my friend that I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, after we had that conversation and she went back to work later in the day, sent me a little list of 
things that she'd been thinking about since the conversation that she was grateful for, that it was really helping to support her as she worked through a difficult time. And, you know, it's, it's an easy practice when things are good. It's real easy to be grateful when things are going your way and, you know, the paycheck comes in and the job's here and your partner loves you and your kids are being well-behaved. And it's a much harder practice when the computer breaks down and your kids are being nasty and one of them's throwing up all night and your partner is not being so nice, you know. And then it's sort of like gratitude. I don't think so. <laughs> but um, we can look and find that place where, where oh, yeah, I can, I can learn from this. And you know, another friend who lost her job not too long ago um, came to me some weeks later and said, you know, so many doors have opened and they would never have opened if that hadn't happened. And it was really awful and I didn't like it. But these other things are going on. So, in the end, kind of come back then to the Metta Sutta. You know, we're working at becoming skilled in goodness. We're working with forgiveness and with compassion and with gratitude. There's a few lines at the end of the Sutta that are quite interesting. It says, By not holding to fixed views... The pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. And I, I often would think, what is this right at the end of the sutta? You know, not holding to fixed views, not being born again into this world. It sounded kind of abstract and kind of grim. And what I've come to appreciate about it is that this last verse is actually then pointing us back toward this place of really bigness of view and bigness of heart, that the the less attached we are to any narrow idea of who we are or what we are or how we're supposed to be or who you are and what you are and how you're supposed to be, the more the heart is open, the more the view is vast, then and the more there's no us and them, the more we can invite all in, you know, all those beings into the heart. Then that actually is the place where we step out of the, the cycle of suffering over and over and over again. So I thought maybe I'd close and read you the Metta Sutta. I know it by heart, but I never trust myself to just to recite it when I'm in a group of people. So I'll read it to you. And just reflect on it as I do. Some of you know it, so you can kind of say it along with me if you want. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove, wishing in gladness and in safety May all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, 
omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none, through anger or ill will, wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life, her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born again into this world. So I thank you for listening. And I actually think tonight I'm not going to take any questions because I think it would be more fun to have time to hang out together and to share your insights with each other. So I'm going to make a few announcements and we'll do just a last little gathering of the merit since we've already done quite a bit of metta. And then we'll eat and clean up the leftovers and all that kind of thing. So... I was really glad that I came tonight and looked at the announcements because I'd misplaced for at least a moment the fact that there's a half-day sitting on Sunday and I'm teaching it. (laughs) So it seems really useful for me to read the announcement. So on Sunday, um, beginning with the regular sit at 9.30 um, and going until 1 o'clock, We'll have a day of silence, sitting and walking, some reflections, really just intended as an island of quiet in the holiday season. So those of you who might be coming regularly for the the 9.30 set, feel free to come and free to leave at the end of that set. And then the people who are staying for the the half day um, are welcome, of course, to stay. And if you want to come in, at 10.15 or so, 10.30, and just be there for that part of it, that would be okay, too. So it's called Stepping into Silence. I think there's, well, I don't know where the flyers went to, actually, so I guess I can't tell you that there's flyers. Um, Also, um, over the holidays, um, we are having a sit Christmas Eve. Is, Is this not true? Jason is leading us in a sit. And there will be a sit on New Year's Eve, um, quite an elaborate event, um, beginning at 7, and then I think there'll be a break around 8.30 at the end of our normal sit, and then continuing on until 12.30. Our good friend Carla Brennan, who used to teach here, will be leading it, an evening of meditation, reflection, music, and more. 
I don't know what that more means. I'm sort of hoping maybe it might be the chocolate fountain or something. <laughs> Our parlor was always noted for the chocolate fountain. Hers broke. Pardon? Hers broke. Hers broke. Oh, dear. Well, any... There's other hors d'oeuvres. There's other hors d'oeuvres. So um, please... Please come, and I believe um, refreshments are kind of on a potluck basis, so if you want to bring some, that would be great. Um, and then I think there's the one other thing I'll just mention is on Saturday the 9th, Jason is teaching a Dharma and of Recovery Day. And I just wanted to mention, we have an unusual number of our teachers here tonight. Jason's here, over here. For those of you who don't know Jason Murphy, Jill is over here, mm-hmm. and... Uh, Marcy is here. Uh, did Bob get here or not? Mm-hmm. He was yeah. thinking he might. Bruce. I guess not. Bruce. And Bruce, Bruce over here. Yay. So <coughs> Dan Landry and, and Bob Stahl are, are missing beings at the moment. So then the last thing I want to say, and it's really lovely that I have so many people to say it to, is that um, Vipassana Santa Cruz is dependent on donations for our sustenance here for paying the rent. Um, It costs us about $3,000 a month to be here. And for the last several months, we've been running in arrears. We have a fund, a backup fund, so we're not in danger of going under, but of course we can't continue to run in arrears. So we've been running, I think I I said, about $1,000 a month. So we really wanted to remind people that um, it really helps when you make some commitment, and there will be some fundraising going on in the future, but now is really the time to begin to thinking and think about this. So here's something to think about. We have, I would guess, between 100 and 150 people who are in and out of this place on a regular basis. If every person thought of donating, let's just say, 25 to $30 a month, if, that, if it averaged out to that, we would have our $3,000 just like that. Isn't that wonderful? So it's not a lot. And I know some of you can't do that, and some people can probably do more. That's how these things work, of course. So that's just something to let float around in your mind. And then you can put it in the basket here, You can go online and set it up as a monthly donation. You can get airline miles for supporting Vipassana Santa Cruz. Why not? Or L.L. Beans dollars or whatever it is that you like. Um, And then, of course, it flows in in a very regular fashion, which is really helpful. So we really invite you to reflect on that. And then, of course, is what's also true is that it's helpful to support teachers. So there's another basket over there for the teachers, and that can also be done online if you would like. You'll be hearing more about that. Mary, can I add one more thing? As people are thinking about their end of the year giving, please be aware that all your gifts to the Plasma Sacrament, including both for the Sunday expenses and for the <coughs> teachers, are fully tax deductible. Tax deductible. We are 501c3, so mm-hmm. you get a full tax deduction. So if that makes a difference to you, of course... The main thing is you grab your generosity. Right. Thank you. So it's really, you know, I, I love it sometimes when I sit in here and I think, wow, look at this place. You know, look at this place. And it's the gen- it grew out of the generosity. Every board on the floor, the paint on the wall, the lights on the ceiling, it all came out of the generosity of people. So that's how we sustain ourselves. 
Okay, I actually thought since we had teachers, Jill, if you would come up and offer the merit, that would be really nice. Just to play around with this, not do it a little different tonight. So we come to the end of our gathering tonight. This gathering of celebrating the holiday season and sharing food, feeding each other, all kinds of sustenance tonight. And we give thanks, really, for this opportunity to practice. The Tibetans supposedly have two forms of gratitude that they invoke at the beginning of every meditation. The first is gratitude for being born in a human body. This miraculous piece of flesh and bone. And also gratitude for being born at a time when we can hear the Buddha's teachings and find our way toward the ending of suffering on this path of liberation. So we also want to gather the merit, the goodness of what we've done tonight, (coughs) this practice where we sit together and we share our experience, we listen to Dharma, we're in the company of noble friends. We gather this goodness and we give it up. We share it. We share it with all beings in all realms. We share it so that all beings can find their way toward true happiness and peace and an end of suffering. So I'd like to invite you to turn towards somebody near you, preferably somebody you don't know, and invite them to go have a cookie or more food or a cup of tea and get to know them a little bit. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.